Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word tonight, help us to rejoice and find rest in its certainty. You cannot lie or mislead. You have spoken, and we want to hear from you. Give us ears to hear your voice and the wills to embrace and follow what you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second to last in a sermon series on Romans 8. Romans 8, which I consider to be the crescendo of the entire Bible. If the Bible was a song, this would be the point at which all the emotion has slowly built and it is now exploding. The Bible were a roller coaster. We are just over the best peak of the best hill. If the Bible were a movie, this is the moment when we finally understand why and how the heroes have won the day. Integral to our text tonight is the spiritual reality of sin. So before we get to the text, I want to think a little bit together about humanity in the state of sin. Over the years, I've been asked the following question from people who have been wrestling with the faith. Why do you talk so much about sin? Why do you emphasize it so much? For whatever reason, people get tired of this topic and wish that I would present the faith in God to them in a different way. The problem is that the need for redemption from sin is at the center of human experience. From the biblical perspective, sin is the central problem of creation. Suffering exists because of sin. Sickness, disaster, death, and decay exist because of sin. The creation is broken by sin and racked by the curse that sin has brought. Now, to be, let's be clear, COVID doesn't exist because you stole something in February. But all suffering does exist because we collectively, as a species, have rejected God. There's a breach, there's a separation, where there was originally intended to be communion. The first sin caused separation and brought the curse of brokenness to the creation. Suffering, sickness, and death exist because of that brokenness. This state of brokenness is what the Bible calls futility. Paul explains earlier in Romans chapter 8 that the creation has been subjected to futility by sin. The creation is in bondage to this corruption and is waiting, groaning to escape it. This futility is an expression of the wrath of God. 
Now, Paul's project in the early part of his letter to the Romans was to explain the wrath that sin brought and was bringing. In chapter 1, he tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And in chapter 2, we see that for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And the worst news of all is in chapter 3 when we find out none is righteous, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It isn't just Adam and Eve who are cursed. It is everyone, all of us. Adam and Eve made an enemy of God in the garden. When any human chooses to do what they know in their heart and mind is wrong, they make an enemy of God. Each person that we mistreat, each time we look to our own interests ahead of the interests of others, more than anyone else, we offend a holy God. Well, someone says, well, well I haven't been that bad. Plus, I have, I have my reasons. You know, I was mistreated myself as a child, so... Sometimes I lose control of my words and I tear down my children and my, wife, my spouse. But God understands that, right? God looks past my imperfections and cuts me a break, right? No, he does not. God is angrier at sin than you can even possibly fathom. That which you do to the least of my people, that you do to me, Jesus said. God does not grade on a curve. God does not take excuses for sin against other people. Jesus taught some extremely inconvenient things for those of us who might want to minimize sin. For example, that the sin of name-calling and the sin of murder while they are not equal in severity, equally alienate you from a holy God. When we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, we start with sin. The central comfort of the gospel is not that your sins are overlooked. It's not that God says, oh, it's okay. It's that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are paid for, dealt with once and for all. Your sin of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Your sins of omission and your sins of commission. Your internal sins and your external sins. They are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. They are paid for and you no longer owe the debt. This is the comfort of the gospel. Romans 8 as a whole is an extended explanation of why and how the freedom and hope of the gospel are unshakable and certain. 
Paul states his thesis in Romans 8, verse 1. We're told there that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As he elaborates on this thesis throughout the rest of the chapter, Paul outlines the absolute certainty of the gospel promises. And he shows us how we who trust in these promises are utterly transformed. For the end of chapter 8, which is where our passage is tonight, you can turn with me there in your Bible, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 31 through 34, but our text that we'll focus in on this evening are verses 33 and 34. Paul is revisiting the theme from verse 1 of condemnation with some rhetorical questions. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In verses 33 and 34, Paul uses four different legal or judicial terms. He wants us to have in our mind a courtroom setting the court of God's righteous judgment where each of us stands before the judgment seat of God. Paul uses these two questions to forcefully make a point. The answer to both questions is no one. No one can bring a charge and no one can condemn. Why? Because God is both the final judge and the bringer of our salvation. Paul is proving beyond a doubt that the love of God, the character of God, the integrity of God are the basis of the salvation of God's people. What he wants us to see is that salvation rests not just on God's decision and not just on Christ's work, but on the very essence of who God is. Since the salvation of God's people ultimately rests on God's unchanging characteristics, nothing will stand in God's way of saving his people. Nothing can stand in God's way. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Certainly Satan is being referred to here, the accuser of the brethren, that is, the bringer of charges. Consider this situation and what Satan might say. 
look at this long list of sins. Surely this person does not deserve mercy. Paul shows that Satan's words will be less than worthless. They will not have any effect. Why? Because God, because the God who has done so much to rescue you is the God who judges. Think about this. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us stand guilty in the courtroom of God's justice. Justice must be fulfilled because God is who he is. God does not merely overlook our sin. He does not excuse or ignore it. To merely overlook bringing me the justice that I deserve because he thinks I'm cool would be to violate his nature. He is perfectly just. Then how can I be saved? The triune God, knowing that you and I would face his righteous judgment, enacted a perfect plan, a plan in which perfect justice would be fulfilled and you and I would be rescued from our sins. So who will bring a charge against us? No one, because the judge himself is our savior. God the Son demonstrated his perfect love and mercy and his divine creativity by becoming incarnate as a man, living the perfect life, dying the sinner's death. This is the only possible way to perfectly satisfy justice and perfectly show mercy. And who could have thought of it but God? The phrase here, it is God who justifies, therefore, has two meanings. It is God who justifies, meaning it is God who will make the judgment. And it is God who justifies, meaning it is God himself who met the requirements of justice and accomplished for us a perfect salvation. Who shall bring any charge against us? Because of what Christ has done, the glorious and final answer is no one. Who is to condemn? In verse 34, we see Furthermore, that Christ makes it impossible for anyone to condemn his people. He does this by two things he has done and one thing that he continues to do. First, it says, he died. He died as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. He took the punishment that was due the condemned sinner. Again, the wages of sin is death. Meaning that each sinner deserves death. The punishment on the books for any and all sin is death. But when Christ died, he took the sentence on our behalf. Who is to condemn? No one, because the sentence has already been carried out. Second, we see that Jesus has flipped the script on death itself. 
Galatians 3 tells us that Christ became a curse for us. By rising from the dead, Jesus demonstrates his power in the face of the curse his people deserved. His death fulfills the penalty, and his resurrection turns the curse his people deserved inside out. Now, what we get is blessing. Jesus is so big that he swallows up the sin of his people, absorbs the curse sin deserves, and returns with life and blessing. So who is to condemn? No one, because Jesus overcame death on behalf of his people. Finally, we're told that Jesus now sits in the presence of God the Father in the most influential and important position in the throne room of God. And he intercedes for us. Took the penalty for our sin, accomplished for us eternal life, and now he sits saying, my father, remember what I have accomplished. Remember your love for me. Remember what I deserve because of what I have done. That person belongs to me. So I ask that you bless and care for them for my sake. Do you deserve the blessing of God? No. But Jesus absolutely deserves the blessing of God. He deserves to get anything that he asks for. And what does verse 34 tell us that he's asking for right now? He's asking for you to be blessed and cared for. He's asking that you would be kept in his Father's care. Can any charge stand against that? No. Can there be any condemnation for those who are in Christ? No. Make no mistake. The grounds of your acquittal and the grounds of your blessing are 100% Jesus. Anything less is disrespectful to what he's accomplished. It is not 99% Jesus and 1% me. It's not 98% Jesus, 1% me, and 1% the person who told me about Jesus. It is 100% Jesus' work that you and I are saved so that no one may boast, but only give praise to his name. What do these two verses show us? What these two verses show us is that we should take great comfort in this fact. Jesus' people will be saved because Jesus doesn't fail at what he sets out to do. Jesus' people will be saved because he deserves to have everything he asks for. And what he asks for is the salvation of his people.
Those who trust in Jesus have a sure hope, not because of the strength of their trust, but because of the worthiness and strength of whom they trust in. If you, if you come out of the other end of these verses asking the question, but why would he do that for me? Then you have started to understand the reality of grace. This is the gospel that we sing about. Can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? This is the God and Savior that we serve. The practical take-home truths from this chapter are somewhat inexhaustible. Nevertheless, I, I want to offer three very plain and concrete comforts that I think you and I can take home from this text. First, nothing can thwart God's plan of salvation. Not the world, not the devil, and not you. The answer to the two questions, who shall bring a charge against God's elect and who is to condemn, is no one. No one can or will do these things. Why? Because out of the perfect mind of the triune God, a perfect plan to redeem humanity was conceived and it was executed by God himself in such a way so as to bring eternal praise to his perfect holiness and demonstrate his perfect mercy. Your salvation depends, therefore, on the character and integrity of God and not by anything that you could do. This means that the gospel goes forth into the world with power. This means that the goal of world missions will be accomplished. This means that your prayers for the lost are effective. This means that the word does not return void. This means that God will bring you to a place of wholeness because God never fails to follow through. God accomplishes what he set out to do. It may not be in your timing. In fact, throw out your timing right now. But as sure as he is who he is, he will accomplish his plan of salvation. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. He will keep his promises because he can't not. Second, 
comfort to take from these two verses. There's only one opinion of you that matters. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, I know that one already. I know you do. But if you're honest, this is one of those that we know to be true in our head and often live like it isn't true. How much of your life is spent in anxiety about what others think of you? Some of us are paralyzed on a daily basis, worrying about what we said to so-and-so and how it was heard and what they are thinking and what it will mean in the future and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not suggesting that you stop being sensitive to others or you stop being empathic, but I'm reminding you that the disapproval of a human is not to be compared to the approval of God. If your hope is in Christ, you have freedom to love people boldly. That is, to be honest, to be real, and you have the freedom to let go of offenses and forgive when needed. That is, a proper fear of God and understanding of his love for you enables you to love others like God wants you to. Bearing all things, not insisting on your own way, being kind and patient, forgiving others as Christ forgave you. God wants us to love selflessly, and we are able to do that only when our inner strength and security is not relying on what other people think. Our inner strength and security must be rooted in Christ's love for us. And what is more, how much emotional freedom might be found by you if you simply accepted God's opinion of you. you. You aren't perfect. Your sins are ugly. And you have let God down many times. And Jesus knew these things when he went to the cross and rose. And he knows these things now when he intercedes for you. Do you get how much love God has for you in Jesus Christ? Do you see that God's favor upon you is what matters most in the world? God's opinion of you is more important than anyone in your life, any other person, and that includes yourself. The things that you are afraid of have no power over the God who loves you enough to give his son. The last comfort that I want you to take home is if your sin is removed, then you will have soul rest. Human beings, we as human beings, Apart from Christ, desperately fear death. 
We desperately fear being alone. We desperately fear meaninglessness. And you see that the, these things are, they exactly come from the futility of creation that we talked about at the beginning. The human experience, apart from God, is a constant and lifelong battle against the futility of creation. The reality is that those who live without Jesus live in blind fear of God's wrath expressed through the cursed creation. In truth, there is nothing to fear in this world except for the wrath of the living God. Depending on where you stand, this truth is either transcendently freeing or terrifying and suffocating. What the gospel does is reveal to us what, or, or more properly, it reveals to us who is actually to be feared. The disapproval of the world matters very little in comparison to the disapproval of God. Much more than that, these verses that we've looked at today show that this fearful and awesome God is the God who sent his son to die for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest threat in creation no longer applies to those of us who are in Christ. Let me say that again. The greatest threat in creation no longer applies to those of us who are in Christ. The greatest enemy of humankind has himself redeemed her with his blood. All of this works together to prove to the believer in Christ, you truly have nothing to fear. Nothing. In every circumstance, when depression or anxiety rears its head, you are empowered by the death, resurrection, and intercession of Christ to say, what should I be afraid of? Death? You're going to live eternally. Loneliness? Christ will never leave you. Meaninglessness? What has more meaning and value than a life bought with the blood of the second person of the Trinity? The truth that Paul demonstrates in Romans 8 is that brother and sister in Christ, you are the only people in all creation and in all history who have been granted the right to be fearless. You say, well, I don't feel like it. You're, you're exactly, in that moment, you're exactly like me on a dark and cloudy morning, work morning, 
waking up and saying, oh, it doesn't look like morning. It looks like night. I want to sleep in. It looks like night may accurately describe my feelings, but the clock is objective. You may still feel like you're afraid of what tomorrow will bring, but it is your blood-bought right to not fear it. Unlike anyone else, you, Christian, are free to say, whatever tomorrow brings, it'll be all right. Not only it'll be all right, it'll be good. It'll be blessed, joyous, because of Jesus. As Jesus said, the worst people here can do is kill you. Earthly scorn is far to be preferred over eternal scorn. Earthly destruction is far to be... preferred over eternal destruction. The gospel reorients our fear to where it belongs. When you recognize that the just and holy wrath of God is to be feared above all things, then every other smaller fear is put into perspective. And when you realize that God, in his abundant and perfect mercy, has solved the greatest problem of your life, namely sin and the wrath that it brings, you are free to rest. Rest in your soul, have peace in your heart, and joy in what is to come. I'm not saying that feeling this way is always easy. I'm saying that if you are in Christ, your reality is blessedness and freedom from fear. You are allowed to lay claim to that reality and own it. You are allowed to rest in it. It is the beginning of, it is a foretaste of the peace, joy, and hope that is to come in glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are in awe of your amazing love for us, your amazing plan of salvation, the reality that in you we have nothing to fear, and the unshakable hope of the gospel. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We ask that you would help us to live in light of these certainties and that you would enable us to experience the soul's rest that you have bought for us and make us into people who, filled up with the joy of our salvation, overflow to blessing and love for our neighbor. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your plans cannot be thwarted. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.